Hi, this is James Devine, and I am an educator who has come out of the trenches. Listen in as my friend and colleague Dana Goodyear shares stories and tips from other educators who have come out of the trenches. Welcome to the Out of the Trenches podcast. This is Dana Goodyear. Thanks for listening. My next guest is Keith Bellman. He is a certified crisis specialist, personal and marriage counselor, award-winning author, and educational consultant who listens to and helps address emotional problems through person-centered counseling. Keith works with men, women, children, couples by addressing their current issues and works to help them become experts in their lives and feelings. In addition, Keith helps mentor many to become more self-aware of how powerful they are, indeed are, and were created to be. Keith's friendly and transparent style makes him the perfect person to open up to and communicate your problems to. Welcome to the podcast, Keith. Thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. I was looking forward to it since we had gotten um, disconnected before. So I'm actually excited to be here. So thank you for having me. Yeah, and it's exciting to uh, talk with somebody on the podcast who has a a background in education. It's also also you've done a lot of writing on, um, you know, helping young people and uh, just uh, race conversations in general. So we'll get into many different topics on the podcast. But as we start off, uh, as I ask everybody, tell me about a time when you were in the trenches and managed to fall out. Oh, thank you. Well, for me, uh, there's been a few, but I'll I'll keep it towards education since Mm -hmm. you mentioned being an educator. When I first started teaching for the New York City Department of Education in 1998, Mm -hmm. I had spent two years, two and a half years previously working with um, autistic and emotionally disturbed students. Um, I had the opportunity to move into working with the city. So I'm like, okay, great opportunity, um, more money, and and also put me closer to home. But I was working in a very difficult neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And in Brooklyn, when a bad neighborhood is labeled bad, it's it's Mm -hmm. very difficult. Well, my first year, we lost two students Mm -hmm. to gang violence and other street violence. And a part of me, it just didn't make sense to me. Well, it turns out over the next six years, I would lose nine students. And I think what the the hardest was, I remember going to the wake of of one of the students that I had been working with and trying so hard to get him off of the streets that I remember saying to the mother that I'm sorry I did everything I could do. I'm sorry I just couldn't persuade him from being on the streets. And I remember the mother saying to me, I know you did Mr. B and that's what the kids called me. I know you did Mr. B, but I got five other kids I got to concern myself with. And that hit me because the fact that the mother couldn't grieve mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because she was still so concerned about her other children mm-hmm. that it really just knocked me for a loop because it was like, this is just not the way this is supposed to be. Like life is not supposed to be um, like this and schools are not supposed to be like this. And for me, what that did was it it pushed me to have to try to figure out how do I reach these kids? How do I protect mm-hmm. these kids? How do I do more? But I think the hardest part with that is that I literally was taking in the negatives from the neighborhood. And like every Friday, me and other other educators and myself, I want to say that correctly, we'd end up at Applebee's at 3.15 in the mm-hmm. afternoon and we were there until 8, 9 o'clock. And what I realized that I was slowly losing myself at home. Yeah. 
I was taking in the negativity and it was affecting me at home with my own children and, and my own um, situation because I had been married before. And that really pushed me to a point where I had to say, do what you can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when the day is over, put your hat on the, the rack, as they say, and put the books down and then just focus on home. And that separation allowed me to be able to at least keep my feet up under me. Or I think I might have just quit and walked away. I wound up doing another 16 and a half years until I left New York to come to Delaware. But any educator who's worked in a very difficult situation, we understand the systems are going to be bad. Mm -hmm. But when Mm -hmm. you're actually losing children who on one day you taught a child and on the next day you're hearing that that child is no longer on this planet, it shakes you up. But I also think that the, the blessing in that, if there is any, it moved me towards the understanding of why counseling was important, which wound up becoming my second career. So that would be my time in the trenches, which is which is very difficult, was very difficult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like a lot of people who have moved into uh, counseling from like a uh, law enforcement background or, you know, security officer background, I've known a few of those, um, you know, who've seen a lot of what you're talking about and, you know, realize that let's try to do some prevention yeah. Um, and we, you know, as we see a lot more now in the last few years and in the need for counseling as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, some of the writing that you've done. Uh, first of all, I did mention you are a award-winning author and you've uh, written uh, six books and you've been featured in seven others and you're also finishing up a few more books. So uh, if you would highlight a few of those or you could talk about uh, those books that you're finishing up. Sure. Um, I've written everything from poetry to uh, fiction, nonfiction, Mm -hmm. self-help. As well as you mentioned, I've been featured in a few um, anthologies over the years. Um, The thing I guess I'm the most proud would be my memoir, which is called From Gigolo to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, It's my own personal transformation story. And Mm -hmm. I explained that for 37 years, my life wasn't behind the scenes what I really wanted it to be. And I was really... um, misogynistic, I guess, and, and narcissistic. I guess you could put all the, the 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 things that men struggle with there. And then I had a change of of, of faith in terms of just reacquiring my faith. Um, I realized that I needed to become somebody different. So when that transformation happened, um, I had failed my first marriage and just things were spiraling out of control. So once I was able to get myself together, I went back to write a book about it because I felt that if I could share in the way I normally say it is the way if I could share all my dirt mm-hmm. and put out there what I was for basically 37 years, mm-hmm. then it would make these last 18 make sense. Mm-hmm. And also it would make these last 18 stand on its own. Because I think one of the things that I would hear often is people say men don't change. People don't mm-hmm. change. Women don't change. No, that's not true. You do change if the influences and the environments that you're in change. So for me, it took reacquiring uh, a connection to faith to give me the the roadway, the pathway that I needed to mm-hmm. move into a better position. So I put it in a book from Jigolo to Jesus. Uh, my very first book was poetry mm-hmm. and it was called The Man in Transition. Um, and it was interesting because everybody said, don't publish poetry. It, it doesn't sell. You know, won't, nobody wants to buy poetry. And what I realized was that, okay, I won't sell poetry. I'll sell me. And I mm-hmm. would literally... 
um, have the the pieces. I only chose about three pieces from the book, and I everywhere mm-hmm. I went, I would read those three pieces. And one was dedicated to my wife, one was dedicated to my mother, and one was dedicated to the mothers who have to deal with fathers who weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And I won some awards for that. And then from Gigolo to Jesus is the book that got me featured in um, First Ebony, mm-hmm. and then um, I was uh, invited to be a part of Black excuse me, Black Expressions Book Club. And Black Expressions Book Club back in the, uh, let's see, mid 2000s was a a big online book club that a lot of uh, African-American authors wanted to be featured in because it Mm -hmm. then put your book pretty much all over the world because you were then featured in Jet, Ebony, um, Essence, and anywhere where African-American literary works were were seen. And the uh, editor-in-chief, we got to talking over faith, a faith conversation. And she asked me, was I an author? I said, yes. And mm-hmm. um, I sent her a copy of my book and they sent me a contract. And, and that pretty much put me out there um, even mm-hmm. more so. And I wound up getting um, some accolades from that and some awards from that. And since then, I have, um, like I said, I when people ask me to be involved in some of their projects, if the project is of value, because I just won't write anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say yes. So I'm a part of a series that's called The Soul of a Man, where the, the woman uh, who put together the book asked uh, 13, I think it was 13 men of color at the time to write stories that didn't have to do with sports or sex mm-hmm. or anything like that. Just men overcoming negative situations mm-hmm. through our faith. And it could be fiction or nonfiction. That was 2009. We came okay. back in 2000 and we were up for we won the award for um, best anthology of the year that year. Then six years later, 2015, we were invited to come back and do Soul of a Man Part 2. We were runners-up in the same category that year, um, so we didn't win the award, but this time it was 18 men um, that was invited back. And then this past, let's see, another six years, 2001. Mm-hmm. So another six years, we were invited to come back and do Soul of a Man Part 3, I Can't Breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, and this time it was to just talk about the difficulties that men of color are facing mm-hmm. in today's um, society. And um, again, the book was very well received. And the the woman that uh, published the book had said to me, she was like, I was so hoping that you would say yes, because I wanted you to be a part of this project because you've been here from the start. So I was honored by that. And I did a couple other anthologies that currently I'm working on um, part two to an inspirational fiction book that I wrote called um, Lukewarm Saint. So I'm working on Lukewarm Saint part two. Mm-hmm. Uh, fox in a hen house uh and then i'm working on another self-help book and i have a ton of other stories that i'm just trying to rearrange my time because that's something i want to do more of mm-hmm. but yeah i um i try to write from the heart mm-hmm. um i try mm-hmm. to tell stories that people can are, are realistic that touch the reader that you can identify with um and i think that I'm a pretty good writer, but the funny thing is, I guess I'm I'm still a little funny with that. Like when I'm hearing somebody read something that I've written, mm-hmm. I literally have to leave the room where I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm that way. So I don't know if anybody mm-hmm. else who writes has felt that way, but I'm that way. But yes. So I, I have a little bit of everything out there. Um, but the way my counseling schedule has been the last couple of years, it's mm-hmm. been really hard to sit down and just really lock in to finish. And that's something I just mm-hmm. came from a business conference this past uh, weekend in Virginia. That was one of the things I committed to myself uh, for 2023, that I'm going to carve out time mm-hmm. to literally just sit down and, and get back on a writing schedule. Cause I do want to finish the projects I have. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it is kind of like that nagging when you have those like ideas you want to put on paper. And yes, you just can't carve out the time. But yeah, it's good that you have that goal already um, in October for 2023 to finish yeah. this, right? And, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've it's it's been over those 18 years. Sounds like that you've been writing um, these books and, like you said, a, a wide variety. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I'll definitely put those names in the show notes. People can uh, grab those books. Um, and, and learn a little bit more um, about some of your stories and what you've, um, you know, encountered. So I wanted to talk about some of your mentoring um, and the influence that you have on. Uh, so first of all, you had you started the Young Kings Mentor Program. Yes. Um, you said in 2010, but now uh, you said before we hit record that the Young Queens Program has just started as well. Yes. Um, thank you for asking me about that. Um, yes, 2010, um, as I just mentioned about what I was seeing when I started um, teaching, I had been in the system for over 10 years mm -hmm. and 12 years, actually. And I just felt like something needed to be done. So in 2010, I was a high school dean in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, I got to find a way to try to to pierce this this gang situation. Mm -hmm. So I created the Young Kings program, which is a mentor program where we took some very difficult young men brought them together to discuss and have dialogue on the things that they seem to get out of being in gangs, but mm -hmm. quietly work in self-esteem conversations, mm -hmm. um, discipline situations, to introduce them to literature and other things that they may have never actually considered, but just to try to get them to understand that life is more precious than they believe it is. Mm -hmm. And we were very successful. Um, I did it for two years at that um, high school. And then I went to a junior high school um, not too long after that. And I recreated the program there. So then when I left New York in 2016, um, I was away from not around education at all. So in 2019, yes, 2019, mm -hmm. I reinstituted the program because I noticed that here in Delaware, smallest state, but I started to see the inklings and the, and the, the, the building of some of the negatives that I saw with the, the the building of the gangs in New York. And I've started to see and talk to other educators as well as some of the police. And I used to, I was a former investigator. So I was an investigator here in the state of Delaware. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I started to just notice that I'm hearing parents talking about their kids are getting a little bit more trouble. And I was like, okay, I thought I was pretty much done with the school system, but some things you just don't get away from. Mm -hmm. So I reorganized my program, submitted it to a couple of different schools and one of the local ju uh, juvenile detention centers picked me up in 2019. Um, so my Young King program was recreated and we worked with young men who were incarcerated. And the mm -hmm. goal was to try to get them to understand what's needed to be done so they don't transfer to the larger prison. Let's try to figure out a way to get you into mm -hmm. family court, get you home. So then COVID hits. And when COVID hit, everything was shut down. So we went virtual. So I mm -hmm. shut things down in March of 2020 came back in July of 2020 and we went from July to the end of the year um, in January. Mm -hmm. um, and then the start of September last year, I was able to institute the Young Kings at another school. Uh, we had a great school year last year. And then this year is the first time that I'm going to actually be introducing the Young Queens. So now I have a female version to my mm -hmm. young man's program. I have a young woman's program. But this time I'm going to be working with elementary kids. Mm -hmm. um, my Young Kings programs were normally high school and junior high school kids. So this year is the first year that I'm working with the little ones. Mm -hmm. And it's it's going to be interesting because of their ages, their third and fourth grade, which is mm -hmm. um, 
eight, nine, and 10. Mm -hmm. But I brought on two very capable young ladies who uh, worked in after school program with my daughter. And I have a daughter who's okay. eight. So it's mm -hmm. I'm dealing with You're this age, age every day. So yeah. I'm used to it. But these two young ladies are going to help me with the young ladies. I'm pretty much going to give them the reins to work with the young ladies. I'll probably just oversee some things and just add, you know, from my experiences, but I really want them to take the lead. And with the young men, I want them to work with me as well, because the one good thing about this age group, I can have young ladies work with me and we work with the young boys. So it's not a conflict of interest where they're not uncomfortable because they're still young enough that it's not going to matter. Now you get to the mm -hmm. junior high school guys, some of the conversations that they want to have, they're not going to feel comfortable around women being in the room. Mm -hmm. But I think mm -hmm. at this age group and having the two young ladies um, that I'm going to have working with me, and it's so interesting, their names, their sisters too, Jazz and Symphony. Their mothers was music fans. And I just think that's incredible names. Um, and because they worked the after school program that my daughter was a part of, I've, I've got a chance to see them work directly in this element. Plus, they're much younger. Mm -hmm. And with this age group, I need their energy. Uh, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm 54. I'll be 55 in December. It's not that I can't keep up with the little <laughs> ones, but I'm older. So if I can yeah. get the help. And that's another thing, too, is that I can orchestrate and then allow the young ladies to do the legwork, as they say. And I think that we'll be able to touch home because for me, the goal with the um, young men and young ladies is to give them a, an opportunity to have conversations about things they may not be able to share with their teachers, with their mm -hmm. peers, with their parents, and just to deal with a lot of the things that they're hearing in terms of mm -hmm. social media and other stuff like that, and be able to solve solve the things that are myths and, and, and give them truth. And especially with social media, um, I recently ended a contract with the government where I was doing counseling work with the ATF. And one of the, the, the presentations that I did was protecting our children from social media. And the thing that I found, even with ATF agents who their job is to keep us safe, mm -hmm. but as parents, they were lacking the communication skills on how do I address my child on social media? How do I protect mm -hmm. my child from social media? So one of the things that we're going to do with both programs is have that conversation of how do they feel about social media? How do they feel about the things mm -hmm. that they have access to? And how can we get them to look to protect themselves as well as what I normally do, especially when I was teaching, I teach what I call inside out. I teach from through the child back to the parent. So I'll give the child things that I want them to go home and share with the parent. Mm -hmm. So this mm -hmm. way I can kind of introduce some things that may not be talked about inside the home. And the child can now orchestrate that. Hey, I got this today in, in the mentor program. Can we talk about this at home? And then hopefully it triggers something for the parents to want to continue that conversation that we're going to start. So I'm super excited. And we start this week, um, actually tomorrow. So I'm actually I'm very excited about it. Yeah. And it really uh, shows that you kind of, you've worked your way from when you were a dean um, in 2010 and you, you started that program in Brooklyn and then taking it then to Delaware and the juvenile detention center, but now also bringing it down to the little ones and, and really coming full circle and, mm -hmm. you know, really seeing that, I mean, yeah, when you're able to pare it down to those those young ladies and see um, where you can kind of uh, intervene uh, before, like we, I, I've worked with middle schoolers a lot, right? And they're they're already really ingrained in the social media and the bullying and online mm -hmm. um, issues like that. So yeah, I think that age group you're talking about is right where <laughs> it needs to be in in talking about um, how we don't get too mm -hmm. ingrained in that. So. 
Um, so you talked a little bit about your experience in education um, in New York City. Um, you've also worked in the Department of Education and you've taught. Uh, so tell me a little bit about kind of some of the teaching roles and also did you also work with elementary school kids when you taught in New York City? Yeah, I actually had, um, of the 22 years, 13 was middle school. Okay. Um, I only had one year with elementary kids, which was my very last year. And so the other eight uh, was um, high school. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing was when I was leaving, I was offered a position with elementary kids. Cause actually as a Dean, I'm actually a, a discipline disciplinary specialist. If, if that's one of the labels they gave me, I come in and I'll set up the discipline as necessary. I'll get the hallways clear. I'll give teachers an opportunity to teach. Uh, but when I was in a classroom, I was a health and physical education teacher, but I have taught math. I have taught English. I've taught science. I've taught social. I think I've taught everything except for music and Spanish. Cause I don't speak mm -hmm. Spanish. And music, I don't know what I was going to teach. We probably would be just in there sitting and listening to old R&B, and I don't think that's going to really cut it. But um, everything else I have taught at least at least once, but my my specialty was health and physical education, but more so health education, because I really like the fact that health education gave me the opportunity to bring pretty much anything into the classroom, mm -hmm. have a conversation, because it was either dealing with the mind, dealing with the body, or dealing with the social aspects that um, children are dealing with. And so when I became a dean, the biggest thing for me, what I realized was that discipline has to be firm, but it has to be fair, but it has to be fluid. Yeah. Not every situation fits every child. And I found it interesting how many educators in the New York City school system came into this environment, but didn't truly understand the children that they were working with. Yeah. And it used to get me angry, but then I realized no, that's because they don't take teaching as a craft. It's a job. Yeah. So you got two different type of teachers that walk into a school every day. Those that it's a job. They're just here to do what they got to do. Summer's off. That's it. Mm -hmm. And then for others, it's a craft, which means not only do they love what they do, it's their art form. It's yeah. how do I get the kids to just love math? How do I get the kids to love science? How do I get the kids just to love my classroom? And you can see it in the way that the children interact with their educators. So once I became a dean, my goal was how do I get new teachers to buy into this being a craft instead of just a job? Mm -hmm. Because one, it was going to make their lives a whole lot better when dealing with difficult kids, but also was going to give them an opportunity to stay around long enough because the biggest problem that urban kids deal with is the departure of good teachers. So you get a teacher, you're sixth grade, but by your eighth grade year, that teacher is no longer in the building. Well, that turnover affects the way a child feels about themselves, but it also affects the, the camaraderie inside a building. Because I found in good schools, teachers don't go anywhere. They're there 10, 15, 20 years. So because I taught and lived in a lot of the neighborhoods where I taught, I'm on the second generation. I'm on to the cousins. I'm on to the brothers. I'm on to the sisters. And when I came, so I was at one junior high school in the neighborhood. And then when I came back to work at the high school, I now have the cousins or the brothers of kids I had mm -hmm. previous. That lineage helps you with discipline. Yeah. I could go into the community to get things done outside of school because I had a connection to the neighborhood. And that's what allowed me to be a specialist when it came to discipline, because I knew 
what was going on before it came into the school. I was peeking on some of the kids on Facebook before this mm-hmm. became a thing, especially with, with gang violence being a, a, a such a bad thing. And then trying to keep the safe because, again, having so many kids be slain in those earlier years, I didn't want that on my watch. And 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 I've I've had it's been very difficult. And I have dealt with every type of criminal situation that you can think of. And it's been very difficult because you do what you can and you still are going to have people get past your radar and these things happen and you got to be okay with it. But I work with police have to work with police. And that was another thing too, to try to introduce these young folks to police to help them understand that not all police are bad, mm-hmm. that some police want to keep you safe. And I tried to be that bridge. So for me as a dean, I took that very serious where I knew some deans, they were just happy that they didn't have to teach anymore. So they'd shoot the kids through the hallway and that was all they wanted to do. And they hung out in their office. That wasn't for me. I was out in the hallway. I want to see what's going on. I want to see how you come to school I'm going to engage you. If I see that you're not smiling, I notice that you normally do. I'm going to pay attention to that. And the thing that I didn't realize that all of this was the predicate to what was going to be like my career now as a counselor. I was already counseling, but I was doing it under the educational banner. So as a dean, it was just something that I I really enjoyed, but it was very difficult, especially in difficult schools. And after 22 years, the reason why I left early was my daughter was was two years old and I just did not want her to start school in New York City. So I decided to move because I wanted to put her in a different environment because I felt if she started in New York City schools, there would be a lot of behaviors I would then have to try to unlearn. And I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so once you moved to Delaware, um, you set up the mental health ministries um, that you're doing now. Was that kind of that that breaking from uh, being a dean to working in mental health? Um, about two years, let's see, about two and a half years. Um, I got here middle of 2016. I officially started working for myself in 2019 because I was finishing up grad school to go back and get my, um, human service counseling, um, master's degree. I had a, I have a master's degree in education in specializing in curriculum, writing assessments and teaching, but I went back to get a second master's degree in human service counseling because specializing in Christian ministry because I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I had an idea if I could get the churches to buy in, it would be the great, the best place for me to be able to reach people. Mm -hmm. Um, So by 2019, I had prepared myself and put myself in a position where I could now start to do counseling work. I was partnered with an agency that allowed me to work under their banner. And then over um, the next six months to, to a year, I was able to establish myself as um, uh, this podcast is a proud member of the teach better podcast network better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Uh, how can I put this? I was able to establish myself as the, the Christian counselor because I was able to pair mm-hmm. the faith and a the therapeutic understanding, which I knew from school, but I had to figure out how do I, create this to be able to present it to pastors to feel comfortable with it so it took me about a good year to figure out what that was then once i did then it made it a little easier to have that conversation so yeah by by the end of uh 1990 going into 2000 i was now ready to start my company and that's when i i created um my second company i have my own Mm -hmm. publishing company as well 
But this time I was ready and I was in a better position. So now when I met with pastors, I understood not only the language, but I understood how to show them the therapeutic aspects of what mental health ministries could actually do and why it's it's imperative and required based on um, the Christian faith, which I happen to be. But I do work with everybody. I do work with secular folks as well. But because I am a Christian, it was the direction that I wanted to go in. Okay. And then you talked a little bit about um, in your um, in the pre-chat about kind of um, the work that you do in um, the churches. Um, so you um, you not only work with local churches, you also sometimes work with churches in other states uh, because you're noticing the pastors are feeling overwhelmed, even if it's a larger church that has several different pastors. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned in the pre-chat, the Lord says we're supposed to take care of our brothers and sisters. And I think that burden is often on the church staff, right? So being able to pair with somebody like you, um, so what, what would you be able to offer churches that aren't necessarily in Delaware? Again, I appreciate it. That's a great question. I thank you for asking that. Basically what I do is I'm an outside agent and here's how this works. Most people who attend church enjoy their church. They enjoy their pastor. They enjoy what the church is offering. So when now we're talking about the things that are wrong in somebody's life, a lot of people are uncomfortable with sharing, I want to say dirt about yeah. themselves because they don't want to, one, be judged. Two, they just feel uncomfortable that now they have to share with the, the body of, of the church that they're now going to be amongst on a regular basis because we're talking about some very heavy issues that mm -hmm. could be anything. So what I offer and what I explain to the pastors is that look at it like this. If you're their primary care physician, you're their doctor, you're the one that they see, they got a cough, they coming to see you. But if you realize that the heart, the ear, the nose, the back, whatever it is, needs a specialist, you would write a referral and say, go see this doctor. They'll treat you for that. And then you come back to me. That's what I do. Now, the pastor doesn't stop being your pastor. What a pastor does, if he does his homework or she does her homework like they're supposed to, they vet me to make sure that my knowledge, my information, my education is all on point. And then what happens is they refer their parishioner to me because now that weight is all for the pastor. And as an outside entity, I am not a member of the church. I am a, an outside clinician who's coming in to help fix a problem or to maintain the work that's necessary to help you deal with your problem. Yeah. But you are still a member of your church. Now, what I do require is that I require pastors to cover some of the, the bill for those individuals because you're supposed to, because the church is supposed to be able to offer that outreach if somebody needs care. That's part of what tithing is about. And so what I do is I ask the person, how much of my services can you afford? I'll give you an example. Let's say I charge 100. Let's say I normally charge $150, $200. Okay. I'll reduce that to $125 for the church. I'll ask the person, how much can you pay? How much can you afford to pay? They don't even know how much yeah. I charge. And they say, I, I, I only got about $50 a session. No problem. Mm -hmm. okay. We'll take that. Let's go. And the church covers the other 75. The, mm -hmm. the parishioner never knows how much the church is covering for them. They're just paying what they can. Their church is covering the rest. And it's a win-win-win situation for this reason. One, I have reduced my prices so the church is getting a discount. Mm -hmm. The church is paying the difference for the person who needs the care. And the person is paying what they can, but they are getting top flight professional care. 
And once the person is healed or healing or in a position of maintenance, what do they say about their church? You have to come to my church because my church helps take care of me. Mm -hmm. So now the pastor is the superhero, not me. I just do what I do. <laughs> but what happens is who's going to stop coming to the church mm -hmm. if their church is paying for the services that they need and the services are working? Now everyone is glorified because, again, all as members of the faith, our deity is, is glorified because we're all working together and healing is happening and the church is at the forefront. And the good thing is, as the outside agent, I, I have ethics. So what I talk about with the parishioners does not get back to the pastors. The only thing I might ask the pastor for is maybe a couple of scriptures if I need them. I actually don't because I can, I'm very vested in, in, in the Bible itself. So at this point, also, I offer the churches if they need me to come and speak or if they would like me to do some group work in other circumstances, we'll work that out. And I'm always going to give them a discount because I do regular business with them. And what this does, it removes the insurance companies telling me what I can and cannot talk mm. about. Now, I'll give you an example is I still partner with an agency that I have a couple of Medicaid um, clients that I work with. One of the clients, the, the mother is very, very religious based. She is mm. just centered on her religion. And I realized that the faith would allow me to offer her ways to be able to lower her anxiety mm -hmm. so we talked about it we even talked about the homework was what she's how she's going to use her faith to be able to study as well as when she finds herself being anxious she can go and sit down we taught her some i taught her some breathing and taught her you're going to read some of the scriptures you're going to do this and we're going to journal things that i would do in a secular way just minus the bible wrote my notes for the insurance company and then i got the, the agency got a letter back saying they weren't going to pay for the two or three services that I provided this person. Agency said, why? And they said, well, we noticed that in your therapist's notes, he referred to religion two or three times in two or three sessions. Mm -hmm. We're not comfortable with that. And when I had a, a conversation with the gentleman from the agency, he was kind of stuck because he wasn't sure if he really wanted to fight with the insurance companies because he's thinking of the agency on a whole. Mm -hmm. I said, well, if you don't mind me speaking on your behalf for my money, I would love to speak to him. So when I spoke to the agency and we will not, I mean, the insurance company will not put any insurance companies out there. We don't do that. And I said, please explain to me why it's a problem. If you read the notes, you would see that it reduces her anxiety as well as it puts her in a calm place, which is what the goal of the therapeutic procedure that I use. How is that a problem? And they were like, well, if we open up that door to religion, we got it. And they were talking about all the other religions. I got it. And I, I got it. That's when I said to myself, no, I'm not going through somebody else to be told what I can and cannot do mm -hmm. when I know what I'm doing is working and helping other people. So another reason that I go through churches to do what I do, I take the term therapy off the table. So I'm a crisis specialist and a professional counselor. And by working with the churches directly and taking the middleman out because the church is paying for me to be there, I don't have to go through an insurance company to make my money. And the person gets the help that they need, and I can fully use anything that's available to me to help this person get the care that they need. So, I, And it also allows me to work cross state lines. So I, mm -hmm. as, as I mentioned to you before, I have a church in Maryland that I work with. I have a church in Alabama I work with, and I'm actually in the process, a gentleman from Texas, we're in conversations um, with a couple of churches in Texas, and I'm working on, I'm praying on, 
that I can create this this database because what I my ultimate goal is to create a database that will allow churches when they buy in to now have a plethora of different counselors to choose from who are therapeutic centered but also faith centered and then now when they become part of the program their parishioners would have access to whoever they would like to use to help them with whatever's wrong and of course the church will uh, will support part of the fee and go from there. That's what I'm working on now for mm-hmm. the future to see how I can put it together. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it seems like this is a win-win situation for the, the client, the person, mm-hmm. the church and yourself. Yes. Uh, but really, you know, there are more counselors that, you know, probably need to be, be doing all the work uh, that you're currently doing. So yeah, if you could get, <laughs> get a list of people, cause yeah, you know, like we know it's usually that um, you go through insurance and mm-hmm. all that. So mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about your, um, so you do also educational consulting, mentorships. Um, you have conversations sometimes uh, with schools and districts uh, about bridging the gap uh, with race conversations. Um, you do some presentations. You talked about the social media aspect. So talk a little bit about um, what, um, if schools wanted to consult with you, uh, what you could come in and speak about. Well, one of the things that I do is I try to be as fluid as I can, um, like water, because I think what happens is we get too stagnant and we get too rigid and we have to realize things will change if we really present change. Mm -hmm. Right now in the country, we're in a very bad place because everybody kind of runs back to their corner and they're going to try to fight from that corner. What I offer schools, organizations, or anybody that wants to have me come in to speak is that I play the middle. And I'm daring enough to go out there. It's like, I look at it like a dance floor. I'll go out and dance first. And you know, like most people, they want to dance, but they don't go out there. They don't want to be embarrassed. So I'll go, come on, I'll I'll go out there and lead. Because if we want things to change, Mm -hmm. somebody has to be willing to say, I'm willing to come out here and figure out how do we fix this? Or how do Mm -hmm. we work together? How do we do this? And I think the racial part is one of the biggest fantasies on the planet because Mm -hmm. skin color really should not matter. Mm -hmm. We made it matter because of the things that we want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And after a while, when you establish a certain mindset, the only thing left to do now is do whatever you can to try to keep that mindset in place because Mm -hmm. you're gaining something. Well, the way to change that is to show that one, that's not the only method of being able to come together. And two, that doesn't work because if you have have nots and haves, you're going to have conflict. But if there's a middle where we can get together and have conversations, we can talk, we can actually elevate each other. Well, then all of a sudden there's less haves and less have nots and we can all share. The trick is most people are taught to believe that we're in a deficit in the world. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not. It's just that there's too many people in a small amount of circles that have more than they could ever have need or want. So you start to believe that there's a deficit when there's not. There's no reason why the United States should have the largest amount of homeless when we have the largest amount of billionaires on the planet. It makes no sense. So when you wrap color into it, of course you're gonna have animosity. The thing that I try to do is try to explain it. There's bad folks, white, black, and indifferent. Yeah, It's just a matter of what the situation is and are you willing to call it out? Are you willing to have that conversation? So when schools invite me to come in, 
I try to explain to, and I and I, I blow up the myths of color. Mm. And one of them, I'll give you one example now. Do you like any type of sports? Really just kind of winter Olympic type sports. Okay, well, okay. that's even better. Winter Olympics. So downhill skiing. Sure. Curling, which I still don't understand why that's a sport, but okay. <laughs> so we'll just take the Olympics as a whole. When the Olympics is going on, you literally see people in whatever country they come from have no care what color the person is if they win. When they stand on their podium and their anthem is being played, they mm -hmm. do not care that the person is whatever color. Why? I think they pointed it out a lot more in the last Olympics. Well, there they were did. Were African-Americans who won golds? They, well, yeah. because when, when something has, but see, that's different. When yeah. something hasn't happened, yeah. you say, hey, this is, this is new. Yeah. That's news. Yeah. But overall, sports shows yeah, sports, you that yeah. color doesn't count for this mm -hmm. reason. Mm -hmm. You will see, like right now, I live in Delaware. I'm a Cowboys fan. That's hard. Yeah. Because we're in the shadow of Philadelphia. Yeah. When the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl a couple years ago, and I've seen this in New York when I was at, the, at, at Madison Square Garden, when the Knicks are winning, mm -hmm. it's only 19,000 people that fit in the old garden. People are yelling and screaming and hugging and high-fiving and everything yeah. else. No one cares what color anybody is. Mm -hmm. It is the minute that the game is over and you start to head back out onto 8th Avenue that all of a sudden everybody goes back to their position and now we're ready to club each other over the head when just a few minutes ago we had united, unified mm -hmm. cheer, unified joy, unified sorrow if the Knicks lost, which they did often. I made a lot of money on that, but that's a separate thing. So how is it that we can have unified joy while watching a sporting event and not five or 10 minutes later, just walking maybe a couple of hundred yards, we turn around and become animalistic. So if we can do more or recreate more of what we're actually doing during the sporting event in our regular lives, well, mm -hmm. we would have the same outcomes. But we're not having those conversations and we're not having folks who are pushing for those outcomes. So when you invite me to come in to speak at your school, when you ask me to come in and speak at your program, or you just come and speak to me in general, I don't judge color, I judge action. Right now I have a 30-year-old gentleman I bowl with because I bowl for money. Mm -hmm. He's white. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was in Virginia for a business event. Him, my wife, and my daughter went up to North Jersey because my wife was bowling. He was going to bowl, but his ankle was bothering me. He didn't bowl. Young white guy in the car with my wife and daughter. Why do I trust that? Because I know who he is as a young man. I don't care about his color. To me, he's family. So it doesn't matter. And the, the running joke was, my wife always takes pictures when we're getting ready to travel somewhere. So she took a picture of her, Adam, and my daughter. And she said, getting ready to do what we do. So the, the mm -hmm. folks in the chat was funny. It was like, hey, hey, what happened to Keith? When did he grow that red beard? And Hey, Keith, you're looking a little, you need some more sun. So we were, yeah. they were joking and laughing about it. But the fun part about it is he's there with my family. Yeah. Color, where does color come in? Doesn't matter. Because here's, and, and I know he'll protect my family the same as I would. Because we're friends. And that's the, the middle that has to be discussed and fought for. Right now, we're losing that middle. And when you lose that middle, well, now anything is, is 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 up in the air, and this is what we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, it's, I know, it's like being of that same generation as you and really 
not having really thought about race so much. And I, I know it's important to have the conversations mm-hmm. that people are having in the school space now and acknowledging history and, and things. But like you're saying, it's um, people don't really care if they're cheering for the same team, those types of things, right? It's mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, on all the things that you do. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. have such a wide background uh, as a writer and counselor and a mm-hmm. dean of students. Out of everything we talked about today on the podcast, uh, what's one thing you'd like listeners to remember? Uh, I, I would like to leave folks with this. Now, can, are they doing see the video or is it just the audio? It's both. Okay. If you're watching this, here's a wonderful woman who's white. I would like to think I'm a wonderful man who's black, if you would like to see it that way. <laughs> but here's what you actually saw. Two intellectuals mm-hmm. sitting down and having a conversation with the hope that everyone who sees us mm-hmm. and everyone who hears us will be uplifted and moved from what they heard and what they seen. Mm-hmm. That for me is the goal. Every time I open my mouth, That is the goal for me when I work with someone, when I'm working with someone's children. I have clients of all colors Mm -hmm. and I don't care because my goal is to try to save lives. And I honestly believe if we really want to change what we see, if Mm -hmm. we really don't like what's going on in the world right now, more of us have to get together and say, how can we sit down and have a conversation first and let that conversation be honest, be truthful, be heartfelt, because we're still humans. We're still emotional. We mm-hmm. still, when our hearts are beating heavy, we feel it. Somehow we done got so coarse that you can't even say good morning to some folks now and it turns into a fight. We got to reclaim this because I just don't want to see us lose this because I think that slope is so slippery. That if we slide down it, I don't know if we get back. So to anybody listening, first of all, Dana, thank you for allowing me to have time on your platform. And to anybody that's watching, Dana, thank you. Because if you've never got a chance to hear me before, I'm not in front of you if it's not for her. And that is proof that if people are willing to extend themselves, you will come across some folks you didn't even know was on this planet. And hopefully I've made your life a little bit better. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a pleasure really uh, <laughs> listening to you and hearing your thoughts and, um, you know, talking about these important topics um, and helping our kids. That's the bottom line and helping Thank the next you. generation. Where can people connect with you and find you online? Oh, okay. I have two websites, but my main website is Braven Consultants. That's B R A. V-I-N, consultant, C-O-N-S-U-L-A-N-T-S. I'm late. Excuse me for if I was spelling wrong. Teacher that spells things wrong. I'm honest though. Braven Consultants is my main website, but here's what I tell everybody. You do a Google search, you will find me. I am on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I am on TikTok. I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram. And I'm pretty much anywhere social media goes on. Just look up Keith K.L. Belvin. Um, all my books are on Amazon, but I would say come by my website first, simply because Jeff Bezos holds up independent authors for 55% off the top. Most people don't know that, and they just go right to Amazon to buy. Always get your books from the author directly if you can. 
So I'm everywhere. If you want to find me, you will. And I look forward to having a conversation. And I would say this to anybody that's watching. If you've seen me and heard me and, and something that I said moved you, reach out and tell me. Let me know something that you heard tonight, because I'm going to be honest with you. I love that. When somebody shares with me, hey, you did this or one of my former students. And Dana, can I leave you one last thing before we go? Mm-hmm. One of my former students asked me what I counsel him and his fiance for their wedding next year in 2023 and then said, could you marry us? So I was his high school dean. And some 2010, he was one of the original young Kings. He is now a division one basketball coach. His, his fiance is a division one basketball coach. They want me to do the pre-counseling, which I'm currently doing. They want me to officiate their wedding. And they ask what I remain on to be their mentor, counselor slash, whatever it is while they're married, simply because of who I am to this young man. So if I don't start the young Kings program, and I don't help save this young man's life. It doesn't come full circle where now I get to help him say I do to move into a whole nother level. That's the circular thing that I'm trying yeah. to share with the world. So I just wanted to leave that with you. Yeah, right. That circle of influence. And it's yes. always for, uh, for us educators who, really, you know, see the adult later yes. on. And, and now you're able to uh, work in his and his uh, future life's yes. um, future, right? Yes. It's yes. so great to hear. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the Out of the Trenches podcast. Have a great Thank rest you. of day. Thank you so much. You have a good one. It was a blessing, a blessing to be here. Thank you so much. My book, Out of the Trenches, Stories of Resilient Educators, has now been published. Get it now at amzn.to slash 3b7-2z. Again, amzn dot to slash three b seven eight x two z check out the show notes on danagoodier.com to learn more about this guest and links to their social media please subscribe share rate and review wherever you download this podcast tell your friends and colleagues about it and if this episode resonates especially with you be sure to share it out on social media and tag me at Out of Trenches PC.